healthcare professionals at all levels are being asked to lead change in their organizations and communities. Maybe you're one of them. And while the technical aspects of this work is often tough, most managers and leaders report that the cultural aspects present far greater challenges. That's why the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Open School has developed a nine-week virtual course for change agents, Leadership and Organizing for Change, that draws from the teachings of the Harvard Kennedy School's Marshall Gans on leadership, organizing, and action. Through weekly video lectures, group coaching calls with experts in the field, and support from your peers, you'll learn to apply skills and knowledge in leadership, community organizing, population health, and the science of improvement. During the course, you'll be asked to choose a specific project for your organization or community, and then directly apply your learning each week to move your project forward. Leadership and Organizing for Change begins on September 20th, and scholarships are available for those who apply by September 9th. For more information on how to enroll, or to see if you qualify for a scholarship from IHI, visit IHI.org lead. Now here's WIHI. If you ask most health systems if their work on improving patient experience is part of an overall quality strategy, the answer will undoubtedly be yes, and probably on paper at least that's the case. But this integration turns out to be a lot harder in reality, especially when responses in patient surveys aren't so glowing and translate into lower patient experience scores. There's money on the line from payers like CMS and reputation be at stake. Wanting to get those scores up or unstuck can lead to patient-pleasing changes, but without the rest of the package, the rest of the organizational improvement, including staff and clinician engagement, joy in work, progress isn't likely to endure. There are better ways to approach patient experience, and that's what we're going to discuss on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here live and after the show on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Anyone who's ever tried hard to please someone with a lot of niceties only to find out that that someone is actually looking for deeper connection, most of all, knows the sting of having gotten it all wrong. The experts we have with us on today's WIHI know this scenario well and have a lot of combined experience helping their staff and helping organizations appreciate what truly matters to patients. So, two introductions in just a moment, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, on the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways people have connected to WIHI today. From, for the highest quality broadcast, we recommend connecting through WebEx, the, the, the WebEx audio stream on your speakers or your headphones. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone, and we've included the dial-in numbers on today's slides. To access those through WebEx, click on the audio tab above, choose audio connection, and opt for I will call in. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. If you have, if you continue to have issues, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their, their number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive page over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. Finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here. Please take some time after the program and fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions. At about the halfway point of the show, we welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets. All right. Our guests joining by phone first, Helen McPhee is Chief Transformation Officer for Memorial Care. That's a five-hospital nonprofit health system in Southern California. Helen has executive responsibility 
responsibility for system-level transformation and performance improvement in the areas of population health, clinical quality, patient safety, risk management, utilization, lean, and patient and family experience. Helen is very busy. Welcome, Helen. Glad that you're with us today. Good morning, everybody. Okay, great. Also on the phone, we've got uh, Christine White. Uh, She is the co-founder of Afina Partners. That's an organization committed to healthcare transformation. She is faculty at IHI and leads large-scale system transformation in consumer engagement strategies as well as in innovation. Welcome, Chris. Good afternoon. <laughs> We've got a lot of different time, time zones here, so uh, take <laughs> take your pick. We're spread out here. Trying to get them all in there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, and Barbara Ballack is with us, also on the phone. She's the other half of Afina Partners as a co-founder with Chris. Barbara is senior faculty at IHI, a former member of the National Patient Safety Foundation Board of Advisors, and faculty for Arizona State University's Executive Fellowship in Innovation health leadership. So a big welcome to you, Barbara. Hello, everyone. Okay, terrific. All right, we're going to get right underway here. So Barbara, when I first started talking and emailing with you about this topic for WIHI, you told me, and this is, I hope, a quote, people chase random acts of goodness, you said, unquote. And I was thinking of calling this show How to Avoid Chasing Patient Experience. So kick us off here. I'm going to just ask you, how did we get to a point where we might be really in danger of chasing patient experience. Thanks. Yes, that is a direct quote. I'm known as saying chasing random acts of goodness, and it is so understandable and so tempting to chase solutions for patient experience. Number one, we have discovered it is far more complex and tougher to achieve than I think any of us ever anticipated when we really started getting rigorous with measuring and trying to understand patient experience. So I think about three reasons why it's understandable besides it's just plain old hard. Um, One is that um, we see the other's uh, actions of other colleagues that have made a difference, moved their scores, moved their results, and we go, oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm going to try that whatever that is. It's usually a set of activities in isolation from a larger system. The second is there's this huge pressure, all sorts of value-based purchasing and public reporting measures. There are a lot of dollars at risk. This did not used to be part of our reality, and it certainly is today. The third reason it's understandable and tempting to chase these numbers is that um, we tend to not use our data correctly and look at the correlation. And I know Chris is going to talk about this a little bit later. So we fail to look at the full range of experiences for patients. And thus, it makes us look like we have attention deficit disorder as leaders. We're going after one thing. We maybe will see improvement. But while we've got our eye on that ball, three other balls have dropped in the meantime. So we take our eye off the prize of that larger picture. Now, the good thing is, I think we all are experiencing many of us struggles with this. So there's a lot of learning and improving in this area all the time. So I think this is a wonderful opportunity for many of us to talk together about that. I think there's three gaps that we're looking at closing um, so that we can stop chasing and start improving. The first is many organizations fail to have a clear definition of patient experience and its link to other strategies. As you mentioned earlier, Madge, it may be on paper, but how do we describe it? And far too often, I'm with organizations, well, their their description of patient experience is a certain percentile ranking in their patient experience surveys. That's not a definition, that's a measure. I'm offering a definition here that come from our colleagues at the Barrel Institute. There's many interesting ones out there, and I encourage organizations to have a clear, wonderful, rich description. Uh, What I'm also advocating, and I haven't seen many, I'm in search of those, is in the patient's words. So I I don't think this one from our colleagues at Barrel really quite capture patient's words. I think it has the intent of that. So lacking... um, 
a full definition, we tend to chase things in isolation. Second, we view patient experience through our eyes, not through what matters to patients and families. And if we look at this next slide, um, this is some work that Chris White put together based on lots of research, most recently by uh, colleague Ben Larry and colleagues, um, that talks about clues that people pay attention to when they're experiencing healthcare. And it, describing it as work, look, and feel. How does it work? How does it look and how does it feel? And all of those are combined together, certainly if it doesn't work well. If you harm me, if I can't get in to see you, uh, certainly not gonna be a great experience, but really underlines all of this is the feel. How am I treated? What is the behavior, the emotional components of that? So what does it look like when we truly look through the patient's eyes and ask deeply what matters to you? Then the third is um, we miss the connection, and this uh, is our next slide, um, to our team members, our colleagues' experiences. Um, our, our great colleague Maureen Designano says you cannot give what you don't have. And what I add to that is you can't draw from an empty well. Um, so in work that I've done with patients and families and partnerships with colleagues, patients and families know when all of us are running on empty when there's burnout, when there's not joy in work. And so that's a piece that we often underestimate. I've, I've rarely to see an organization that is moving forward and excelling in patient experience and lagging or defaulting in, in team member engagement. I'd like to illustrate this with a quote from Don Berwick, which he talks about the gifts of hope confidence and safety that healthcare should offer patients and families can only come from a workforce that feels hopeful, confident, and safe, and that joy in work is an essential resource in the enterprise of healing. So if we look at this next slide, even back in, I believe this 2011, when we did uh, the experience driver diagram co-created with patients and family members, one of the big areas that uh, we circle, and if you click next, uh, John, um, it's hearts and minds of staff and providers are fully engaged. That was fully identified by all the involved, and that came from both the literature and our co-creation with patients and families. And finally, what we've been learning from the joy and work activities through IHI is the powerful connections for change. When we ask our colleagues, when leaders engage team members about asking what matters to you and what gets in the way, nurturing psychological safety and tapping into that purpose for energy and change. Um, many of the sites we've been working with find great energy to improve activities for patients based on feeling nurtured, understood, and that those pebbles are removed for them. So that's a bit of background, Marge, Madge, and I'll pause there. Okay, thanks a lot. John, just go back one slide. I'm sorry if we sort of, um, the WebEx doesn't give us this uh, nice uh, jazzy opportunity to kind of build on a slide with a circle there. But the one you were trying to circle was in the middle there. The uh, every care interaction Correct. is anchored, okay, in a respectful partnership. Correct. Okay, all right, just yeah. to clarify and, that. Yeah. And Great. And even though this was developed, particularly with a focus on acute care, those of us who have worked in all sorts of settings have found that these um, five drivers have really helped stood the test of time and are pertinent in all settings. Okay. All right. Very, very good. Well, thanks, Barbara, for kind of starting to set the stage uh, of kind of uh, where we might be at with some of this. And we're going to now evolve a little bit. And Barbara will be back, of course, with Q&A and also on chat. So let me turn next to Chris. And Chris uh, does a lot of thinking uh, about data (laughs) <laughs> and uh, all that gets generated, and a huge amount of it does get generated, and that continues to be challenging for everyone in terms of making good use of it. Uh, so, uh, Chris, uh, take it away. Uh, you've got a lot of thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Madge. I do have a lot of thoughts, and it was never my goal or intent to dig as deeply into the data as I have, but if the the notion about the stop the data data craziness is prevalent, and it's been prevalent for 
decades, I hate to say, um, our, our understanding and utilization of data related to the patient experience. And so sometimes I wish we could all just take a collective real deep breath and say, what are we trying to accomplish? What is our goal? And that's a, a tough question because uh, Madge references in the opening, but is it about reputation, marketing, and brand? Or is it about, in Michigan, we call it teaching to the meat, teaching to a standardized test, which in our now environment is a CAPS product for most of us. Is it about um, cash? Is it about performance reviews and incentive compensation and, and um, raises and those sorts of things? Or is it about understanding and recognizing data sources and utilizing it to achieve the best care, the best outcomes, and the best place to work. And so really that honest conversation with ourselves and with our colleagues and our organizations, no matter where in the continuum we are, is maybe not a bad place to start because if really we have this overriding panic about what is in the public domain and what about our compensation, we're going to fall short of really embracing the data and floating all boats with that understanding and the utilization of all data sorts. So maybe a collective pause and deep breath and asking ourselves that question is something we could do for ourselves. Um, so let's do a little um, to the next slide. Where are you at? Just again, this is a personal self-reflection and I, again, sort of tongue in cheek added this some stages of grieving. But, um, and I'll say that people are in and out of this space. So. Are you denying we have patient experience data? Well, nobody really can ignore that fact anymore. Um, but maybe, you know, if you just don't make eye contact and don't open the email and push that to the bottom of the agenda, we don't have to talk about it in our meetings. Or are we shooting the messenger, you know, trying to um, say it's got to be that tool and who's producing this tool and they don't know how to do data? Or are we at the point where we're accepting it about saying, okay, help me learn how to use this to drive change and understand our impact? And then actually, once we understand it and accept it, how do we use it? And how do we really go after the high leverage improvement opportunities to create the best care outcomes and the very best place to work? They are inextricably linked together. And um, it, really, that is the place we want to go. So where um, can we look for data? So the obvious one is the CAPS products, right? That everybody is um, engaged with now at this point in time, in the U.S. at least. Um, our colleagues from abroad um, have other variations of this. Um, is it another standardized survey? Uh, very fine um, tools out there. Is it focus groups, patient relations? You can read down the list. But the bottom line is that in patient safety cultures and staff and provider engagement surveys, there's a richness of data sources out there through rounding, through stories, through letters. Um, there's just abundant data. And I, um, I'm going to hold that last bullet point there, the hot comments, because it is a gold mine. And I'm going to come back to some newer thinking about that particular category. But the bottom line with this is there's qualitative and quantitative data sources in abundance. It's, it's, it's patient experience is a multifaceted data set. If only there was 10 questions, if only there was 10 questions with clarity that just pierced through um, the improvement work in the space, we would be a lot better off. But it's Barbara mentioned it's very complex and we underestimated that going in. Um, so each data source gives you a view. And this is really trying to say um, in a very unpleasant cartoon, uh, start eating the tail or somewhere on that elephant to become um, knowledgeable. So the data self-assessment, I offer this just for your review because where is the information source, but that horizontal access may be even more important is number one, do we have this information? Number two, is it is it organized and accessible to you wherever you're at in that? Is all these data sources, this richest of data, this, this organization, is it summarized and understood by senior leaders? And then is it accessible to frontline staff? And again, as you look at your data, that holistic approach is important. So we won't spend time, but it might be helpful to you. Next slide, please. Coming. Thank you. <laughs> so these are five areas that I really want to spend just a couple of minutes on because I think that this may be potentially the key. And I'm going to start in the bottom and uh, plot your data in time order. And that's this is a uh, IHI call. So <laughs> this should be uh, probably not spending a lot of time on this, but a single data point provides no useful guidance. And so it's that plotting over time to understand the before and after impact of outcomes, of interventions, of efforts is absolutely key. 
and I'll just put a plug in this, that most of our standardized survey are reported by date of survey, not by date of service. So again, as you get deeper and deeper into this to really understand what the data is telling you, just a, a hint to pay attention. But the really big takeaway is plot your data in time order. And I won't get into all of the run charts and control charts, but know when what you're doing is making a change. And uh, Barbara calls this the cycles of despair, the pizza party one month and management panic the next month. Um, and so it can help avoid that. Um, the, the fourth bullet point there, remember how the end matters. And again, this continues to be such a problem with sample size. And this is probably the one, number one way to dramatically um, impact interpretation of your data. And it can make us crazy because a small sample can just wreak havoc with your data. And um, I read an article recently that said that small ends are the number one cause of leader cycles of despair. And so, again, there's really good literature out there around this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you're suffering with small ends, um, before you spend time moving to action, figure out how to interpret that data correctly and probably supported by other data sources. Um, the third one is interpret correlations. And the best way that I can say to think about this is just because it's on a survey doesn't mean it matters. And just because we ask it a certain way doesn't mean it matters. And the most glaring example and the simplest as an illustration is the CAP survey about is it quiet at night. And people, honestly, when you spend time talking with patients, they don't know how to answer that. First of all, they don't expect it. If, if you talk to patients, they say, I don't really expect it to be quiet. I want to be able to rest so that I can heal and so that I can get better. And so it's really more about rest versus quiet. And in fact, I've had patients tell me, that when it's quiet, it's creepy, and they wonder if anybody's out there if they need help. And so we've all spent a tremendous amount of effort putting shush posters up and red light and green indicators for noise. And it's not that those are not valuable, but what is, what's the message from the data is people want to be sure they're getting enough rest. And so how do we reframe our efforts? Um, but as we look at where to put our time and energy, things that matter, again, we don't have time for whole data lecture, but the closer that it correlates to a one, that the individual indicators correlate, the stronger it is to the overall experience patients have. And so if you have a chance to go after something that's a 0.9 correlation versus a 0.5, you think about where you want to spend your time and energy. Um, the second bullet plate from the top is understand percentiles, and I apologize right now for going through these very quickly. We can come back as needed for any of them, but percentiles are important. And I will tell you that in my own experience, we spent some time, good amount of time, just comparing ourselves to ourselves, which there's value in that. And then our first look at an external review, um, our jaws fell open because to understand where the market was at was a little bit of a, um, a rude awakening, if you will. And so where a sense of where the market and the performance of the organization is, and I will say about this, stratify that data. Stratify it because there is a difference between oncology program to oncology program. That's a different baseline, if you will, different comparison than OB to OB or PEDS to PEDS. So that whole aggregate number is one, but the, the richness in utilization comes with stratification of percentiles. And then finally, top box. Healthcare, particularly with CAPS, has really come to realize the value of understanding that top box. It is sort of the bottom line loyalty indicator. Um, this has been known in the, in the business world and industry for decades and decades and decades. And this is where I wanted to just take a minute to say that top box is worth worrying about for many, many reasons for the loyalty and, and et cetera. But there is an emerging understanding about the richness of getting into the comments associated with those people that will give you the top box score for willingness to recommend in particular. And here's just a couple of interesting facts. If you get into the comment section, the hot comments, if you will, or the written comments on surveys, that at a low of 18%, at a high of 50%, there are negative quote unquote comments, suggestions, areas for improvement. And it really relates around things that we're not asking in the surveys. There's things like, I was incredibly anxious, the, interprofession the interprofessional communication is alarming. People are reprimanded um, and were reprimanded in front of me. Um, personnel seemed anxious, distracted, exhausted, um, which was Barbara and Madge, I think, both referenced that earlier. Um, the environments are designed beautifully, but they don't work for my family. Or beautiful, but there's mold on the wall and stained on the, on the linen and patched linen. And so, again, as you want, these are the people who say at 
absolutely, I want to send my family and friends to you, but there's things you got to work on. And so there's a richness in that. And if you have to whittle down where you're going to put some energy, I might suggest you take a look at that in your organization. And so with that, I've given you a whirlwind tour through some high-level um, data aspects of this, and I will um, okay. hold for there. All right. And uh, thank you, Chris. And uh, to the person in the chat who wondered if we were frozen on that uh, slide, five key items to review, no, not at all. Uh, I'm afraid WHI doesn't have quite the uh, format to go into a lot of detail about each of these, but we can. you can certainly ask some questions of Chris and others during uh, the Q&A. And so these are sort of the broad areas. And Chris, I think you gave some really good illustrations of each one of these. So appreciate that. And one connection uh, I heard that's going to uh, sort of now lead us over to Helen McPhee and Memorial Care is this issue about learning uh, from qualitative comments, which I know Helen is going to talk about. And also the thing that has been kind of fascinating uh, after all these years to begin to understand what is it that folks are really talking about? Are they talking about sleep? Are they rest? Or are they talking about no noise uh, whatsoever? So I think that's a really interesting one that's getting unpacked. And with that, uh, Helen, I know uh, you've been hard at work at all of this at Memorial Care, so uh, you can pick up on any themes you've heard so far from Barbara and Chris, but I know we're also eager uh, to hear about what you've been doing at Memorial Care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, and again, good morning from California. Um, so thanks for allowing us to share our story. And I know that many of you have stories and we're all working on this uh, very hard. And so what I thought uh, might shape, you know, kind of take it back to us of what's going on out here in the field and what are we trying. I wanted to link this to this idea of um, eight key connections that we've found to driving patient experience and loyalty and tell you a little bit about our story. So um, on the next slide, um, you'll see that we're going to be talking about uh, these eight things, and I'm just going to explode them a little bit as we go through and give you snippets, um, and of course, we can talk about that more as we go forward. But I think the first sort of string, if you will, is understanding the customer, and uh, Barbara talked about that. It is about the data is good, and you can take a look at it, and you can look for the, um, and we certainly do look at the comments, and in addition, uh, focus groups are so great. So. You can see over on the right, for example, this is actually our data, so I'm just sharing it with you, uh, talking to a lot of patients and families across our geography about what they really are looking for in a provider. This was for our medical group community. And you can see in the purple font, listens to you, cares about you and your preferences, and spends as much time as necessary are really far more important and prevalent than even wait times um, or uh, best practices or research. And so it's really interesting when you start to ask people what matters to you and then take that feedback into uh, the design of your programs. Um, on the next slide, I'm talking about understanding um, or adopting simply better brand behaviors. So um, as we think about how providers and practitioners interact with patients and families, whether it be you're in housekeeping, you are uh, uh, in dietary and delivering a meal tray, to you are the medical assistant in an office and everything in between, doctors, nurses, et cetera, um, having standards um, uh, it's not the only thing, but I still think it's a key thing. So we've actually done some pretty hard work over the last couple of years on what we call our Simply Better Brand Behaviors, and I've given them to you here. Uh, I actually have uh, on the back of my name badge a little name badge holder thing that I can just put on there that really gives me very quick, easy access to what are our, our must-haves, if you will, and what are the key phrases that we use. And we have a set of tools that we've adopted. They're available to everybody in the organization online, and then we push them out monthly too. Um, for example, anybody in our organization can spend up to $100 through our Simply Better Trust Fund, no questions asked, to either excite, delight, or perhaps uh, address an issue for a patient and family. Um, the next one, I think, uh, number three, um, really talks to joy at work, and there's so much to unpack there, so I'll, I'll wait for the discussion, but I think it is about really paying attention to that. It's what Barbara said, happier employees and physicians and, you know, all of us that work in healthcare uh, then beget uh, an ability, um, a capacity to uh, really interact uh, with patients and families in a better way. 
So um, we've done things, for example, around uh, we pulled all of our employees. We, we borrowed this from our friends down at Sharp Healthcare in San Diego uh, on all hands, 12,000 people, you know, uh, four sessions over two days, really connecting everybody to the purpose and mission. Obviously, that's a big deal and quite quite a difficult feat to pull off. But we are in year 12 of Lean, and I think that's really the secret sauce for me. Um, it's, it's Lean uh, Mindset Methods and Management System where we've really tied everybody across the organization so that they, in their daily work, Work, are empowered to solve problems and through daily huddles and uh, continuous quality improvement as well as breakthrough. A lot of people across Memorial Care are involved in, in that work. And then finally, paying attention to people's uh, physical and mental well-being. We have a program called A Good Life where people eat healthy foods, they can get coaches, there's walking trails all over the place and, uh, and you know, challenges. So I think that's a good one. Um, the next one is gnarly uh, in a California surfy term, I guess, uh, surfer term. But it's this idea of ease and access. And this one is a journey. And we are probably, I don't know, maybe we're in middle school or something on this one. Uh, we have these brand pillars, so ease and access, systemness, and patient centricity for our, our brand. And as we took an honest, hard look at how easy is it for patients to get into our facilities, find us, and then how do we treat them when they get here, we probably would give ourselves a, a negative grade on that at the current state. Um, so we've done some work, but it's about linking it. So we've actually created a strategy this year called Amazing Scheduling, and we're going to be looking at you know online, phone, in person, however you can get to us. We want to make it so that we we make it so sticky and welcoming that people never get dropped um, and that they have an amazing experience getting into scheduling. So I can comment on that later. Uh, number five is concierge billing. So don't forget about billing. Um, you know, sometimes they get their bill before they get their survey. Uh, it's um, it's something about really paying attention to that billing process and working with your billing colleagues. And we empowered ours to really think about what that looked like. And they've done some great work. Uh, so you can see some of the things we've done. We just actually updated our online cash pricing tool. It's like a little widget thing. You can click on a part of the body and, and get the price for inpatient and outpatient elective procedures. Um, you can, we actually have a concierge service, so we reach out to patients and explain to them what their share of cost is going to be and even work out payment plans. And sometimes they'll elect to defer that elective procedure uh, and they thank you for it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and then uh, close to done, on the next one, uh, redesigning for the experience. Um, so Chris mentioned uh, this idea of hot comments and what we were hearing from our patients, and actually this is a great example from Saddleback Medical Center. Um, they, it was about that rest. It's about I can't get the rest I need to heal. And then we were also working on delirium at the time, and, and so they put that together and created a whole lean workshop flow involving physicians, nurses, dietitians. Um, uh, lab, pharmacy, anybody that does anything at night, uh, basically, uh, to really challenge ourselves to think about why do we wake patients up at night and how can we help them fall asleep more easily with lavender wraps and, you know, different things that sort of help people that are soothing and reducing, you know, yes, noise, but it's all the other things. And they've done a great job on that, and we are spreading that across our system. Um, on number seven, I'll kind of leave that to mostly your imagination. You can kind of read that one on when you get the slides. But I just think it's this idea. We've, we've grown over time, as you can see. We have a lot. We have over 200 ambulatory sites. And so don't forget them as well because those are the portals into your system. And so we've done a ton of work around concierge call centers and the like and, and more to do. And then finally, I think it does go back to this idea of setting strategic and bolder goals. So we have a series of quality bold goals. So we have an experience bold goal uh, to get to actually that top box of nines and tens um, on um, overall rating of care and then always. And those are set from our board to our leaders and then spread to all staff. Uh, and we do link to incentives. I, I have a comment about that. Maybe we can uh, talk about that more. I think it's, it's not that that's the only thing. I think, though, it does allow our executives to understand this is one of our key initiatives. And if we do it well, um, they're, they're the skin in the game, but it also sort of collects us all around the same uh, approach and the same um, method. So we can debate that a bit. And so finally, on this last slide, you can see this is actually, I just annualized the data over time, as um, Chris was suggesting. We actually look at it monthly, but just so you could see it uh, on one slide. Uh, you can see we're chasing the top 20th percentile for um, uh, HCAPs, and we're making headway. Uh, we're, we're stable. We're not quite there, but we're, we're, we hope that this next percentage in access will get us up to that. And 
And then in our uh, medical groups, you can see we're very, very pleased with this result. We just got this news that um, they are they did spectacularly well um, in the last year. So um, I think that uh, with all of that, I'll just uh, we have more to do and more to learn. But it's I think taking it backwards. It's this idea of evoking feelings, not ratings. That's really resonated with us. Um, uh, so let me um, thank you all and turn it back to you, Matt. Thank you very much, uh, Helen. I thought I'm going to get just a, a little quick comments from Barbara before we go to chat, but I wanted to just ask you, are there other examples at all or just even another example of kind of where the qualitative, uh, not just the yes, no, uh, highly recommend or et cetera, uh, anything else, uh, any other issue that may might have bubbled up that gave you a a, a greater sense of what matters or something that wasn't in focus. So yeah, I, I think a great one um, is some of our, our earlier work and some of you all out there on the, the Lyme Love Dentist, but really looking at ease and access from wait time point of view, you know, and respecting people's time. So it's that idea of why do we have waiting rooms? Why don't we figure out how to create single piece flow and get people into the system? Um, and if you spend the time to redesign that, for example, uh, our emergency room uh, wait times, so time to see a doctor used to be between two and four hours. Uh, and now it's three to five minutes because we redesign it and put the person that the patient most wants to see fast when they're worried and scared uh, in that ED is the doctor. And so we put the doctor out front. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's that kind of thing where you're, you're not going after the score, you're going after the what's the right thing to do. And then because of that, uh, the scores went through the roof. But we also saw our left without being seen rates drop dramatically. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, really, everyone has been, I know it's complicated stuff, but you've all been so articulate about it all. And uh, there's a lot in these, you know, slides people can refer to. Vicki's here in the studio with us uh, offering links. We'll uh, have a resource document that goes up on the website as well. All right, Barbara, is this an okay moment to kind of go back to those two slides and uh, of yours uh, that come next here and just... Uh, maybe some thoughts uh, as as we continue to encircle this issue. Definitely, Madge. And, and those, I think, are great examples, both of what Chris talked about and Helen talked about, as far as how do we connect the dots. And Helen gave an array of examples of how you connect the dots. And really, part of what she demonstrated was being very clear on the purpose of uh, what what I like to talk about is human experience. Everyone in our environments and who are providing care and service and those who are part of that team, including patients, families, community members. So it's part of being clear on that purpose about human experience and safety for everyone and how we are explicit to link it to the overall strategy and culture of the system. When Helen talks about they get all team members together to talk about purpose. You can just feel the energy that that must have generated to help sustain and work on these changes. As Chris was identifying, don't chase the scores in isolation. Know why you're going after a particular uh, um, arena, not just based on a single score, but what you know in a rich array. Um, and it's based always in partnership with patients and families. So maybe if we could look at the, the next slide, because uh, I often challenge people about how are we partnering with patients and families in this work? And uh, Helen gave great examples of that. How, how do we really understand what matters to patients and families? So in closing, it's about human experience for everyone. Connect the dots versus throwing lots of activities. The worst I've seen was uh, a while ago, a group of physicians um, who are part of a larger, larger practice were being handed things once a week that they were supposed to implement and being beleaguered. They felt like they were at the down end of the shoot and as a result weren't doing anything. Um, and they weren't felt, they didn't feel like they were being heard or attended to. Uh, be clear on each person's part to play and how we do that in partnership with one another. Um, sometimes we use non-specific language or don't involve our colleagues in designing the actions. Um, are there human connections versus cosmetic fixes? It's about the whole journey, not just pieces. And we need to remember there's white spaces in that journey um, that we don't see as healthcare folks. Um, and so how do we understand that and recognize we're all partners in care? 
And I do want to call out one of our colleagues from the UK talked about a, a system they have there that definitely many of us are aware of and are envious of, it, of how to get real-time spontaneous comments from people in the community. So there's so much to continue to learn and grow in this area. So I'll pause there, Mad, so we can take a look at uh, some of the comments and questions. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Barbara, Chris, and Helen, and um, Chris Safarti, uh, excuse me, Sarfati uh, put in a nice uh, a link there around uh, uh, an opportunity in the UK for real-time uh, feedback. Um, this is your opportunity now, everybody, to, I know the chat is underway. Uh, it, this is, you make the chat. Uh, Barbara's put in some comments there where she can, uh, talking a a little bit about at least an opportunity, a bit of a breathing space uh, on the uh, CMS star ratings and what's going to happen there. Uh, various themes here, and of course, uh, if anybody is from an organization where you're trying something innovative, uh, please do uh, share. Uh, everyone will be able to take this chat uh, with them. Um, some of the somebody asked something just very, very concrete, and let's just start with that. What do you do about the uh, tendency uh, with the surveys? And granted, here nobody on this call is necessarily uh, among our panel designing surveys, but maybe when there's opportunities, about um, all the opportunities to just say I don't know. Um, somebody said that they get a lot of I don't know. And um, I don't know, anybody uh, feel like uh, uh, tackling that one just to get us going? All right. I definitely, I, I, that, was the, that was the hard ball. Um, <clears throat> Helen, do you get I don't know, given all the different ways that you poll patients? Um, sure. I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I guess it's, I'm not quite sure what to do with the question exactly, but I think that the... Um, uh, part of what we're looking for is really trying to get to the essence of what people are asking us to really take care of and, and sort of honing in on the, the key things that matter. So I'm not sure, imagine if there's a more specific way to ask that question. Well, I think I will ask the person who asked it to be a little <laughs> more specific, and I'm sorry if I didn't uh, restate it that well. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it there just for a moment. Uh, obviously there's opportunities. Somebody is asking, uh, to talk a little bit about, um, getting insights from patient focus groups and the value of that. Yeah, that, that I can definitely say more about. Okay. Helen. Um, so I think that on that one, uh, so a couple things there. Um, it's very good to partner with your, your marketing team, your, your PR team. Actually, Nicole Smith, who's on this call with me, she's our, she's over our communications and branding strategy. And, um, we have actually done a number of focus groups. And I think you have to realize when you're good at something, when other people are better at it. So in this case, um, your marketing folks can be great resources. And, uh, we've actually, uh, pulled together focus groups groups where um, the the folks that are you know running the running the hospital or the clinics whatever they're behind the glass screen so the the focus group don't see you they're not intimidated by that piece uh, and there it's actually run by a skilled facilitator to draw out and ask questions and have a conversation about what people are seeing and so um, and then all those comments are written down and then from that you kind of deduce the or deduct the actual sort of key takeaways. Uh, the other thing I would say is that we've segmented those kind of focus groups. So um, what works in Long Beach uh, is different from what's going to work in Laguna Hills in California or by pair types or by um, sometimes, you know, backgrounds or just, you know, zip codes, just to make sure that we really understand the nuances and the segmentation of that kind of data uh, before we assume that everybody's, you know, got the same opinion. Okay, very good. Um, there is a question here, uh, maybe I'll go to Barbara for this, and Chris, feel free to also weigh in. What advice do you have related to key messages for the board and management when there is a one-point dip in the data? That must be something that comes up a lot. Uh, questions are asked, and one has to say something. <laughs> and, and, and any thoughts on that? I'll start with Barbara. Um, well, I'll echo Chris and maybe quick bat it off to her. It's uh, uh, in what context, how are you looking at it, and what's your confidence about 
what that one point dip means. So the, do your uh, leadership, does your leadership team at all points in the hierarchy, as well as your board, understand your data set, understand what your aims are, and how uh, an increase or decrease in the results um, are uh, what those mean. Chris, I'll, it, okay. it, it's as Chris mentioned, I'd like to talk about the, the this this terrible cycle of yay, a pizza party, boo, we're all leaders, yay, a pizza party. So I'll turn it to Chris. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I would just echo, and one of the best things to do is to orient um, the board members and senior leaders to control charts so that you know when it actually is a cause for despair or celebration. And that is one of the um, the most demoralizing things is to have a one-point difference and think the world is coming to an end. So, um, again, we should channel Kevin Little, one of our dearest colleagues at um, IHI, who's just masterful at making the notion of control charts and one charts accessible to everybody. Um, but that rigor is really needed, especially at our senior levels, so that we can steer the ship appropriately and not over or underreact. Okay, sounds good. The other thing, go ahead, Matt. The other thing that, uh, excuse me for interrupting, I would add is again echoing Chris's point about uh, adequate sample size, um, and this can happen whether it's a smaller size clinic or a larger sized hospital. I've seen it in multiple variations of settings. I was working with a senior team at a very large uh, tertiary setting, and they were measuring things in a number of units where they had not had adequate sample size for months on end and were reacting to insufficient sample size. And uh, I think that's just so disrespectful of team members uh, to say, what what are we going to do about this? Our patients are saying X when they're violating some very basic statistical analyses. Okay, thank you. We didn't talk about uh, social media, all the other um, <laughs> unsolicited, perhaps, uh, sometimes uh, comments that got, that can be made, that's, you know, come into view in the last few years, especially people monitoring this, uh, wanting to address things uh, quickly sometimes uh, before they go really wild and viral. Uh, is this, is this something that is also provides valuable input? Uh, does it tend to be where positive comments come or more complaints? Uh, Helen, any thoughts? Yeah, actually, I have a, thank you. I was like, oh, pick me. <laughs> um, so, so I have a couple things on that. One is... Um, the yes, so again, the same Nicole and the, the team that we have here, we monitor that actively. It's really important to do uh, to track and see what patients are posting about you. So uh, having somebody that that's part of their their daytime job to do that, and then to uh, sound the alert if they see something and help connect it into your your sort of complaint and grievance processes is, I think, really key. And bringing that to the team. The other thing that we've done, which I forgot to mention, but it's it's been working well. Uh, we do uh, we have a couple of ways of doing um, inline, um, just in time. How are you doing today? Kinds of uh, surveying. So we have a uh, in the if you're in the hospital, we have this uh, I don't know what you call it, but like a console where it'll sort of ask you at certain times of day you know, how things going. Let us know, and it's not in an irritating way, but sort of in a let us know if, if there's something you want us to help you with or whatever, and pulse checks, if you will. It's well as, you know, rounding. But we also have one for um, our ambulatory sites. And as, once you've finished your clinic visit and you get in your car and you're leaving or out shopping or what have you, it texts you and says within about, I think, 30 minutes, how was your visit? Is there anything um, we could do to make that better? And if um, and how would you, you rate your visit on a zero, you know, through 10 scale? And if it's anything less than an eight, they get a call from the manager of the clinic just to follow up and say, Oh gosh, you know, whatever it was and, and, and talk about it. And there's a link in that text to Yelp. And so whether it's good or bad, people are encouraged to make an easy um, linkage. And what's really interesting is the scores have just gone way up because of that. It's sort of just, uh, you know, again, there's something about managing what's in the Yelp site, but also you need to manage the Yelp site yourself, i.e., if all you have is negative comments there, you know, helping the people that maybe have positive comments and don't know how to get there, uh, that's also helpful too. Because oh. you don't want people to be scared of getting access to healthcare. Right, exactly. Um, I'm just curious, uh, Chris. I, oh, go ahead. Yep. I was just going to chime in there if we have time. Yes. Um, 
two things because this is something that really is has been uncomfortable for us the whole Yelp environment and world and so there's two things about that number one um, I've worked more with organizations who tend to see more negative and maybe your proactive approach is genius um, Helen but in the reactive mode you see you tend to see frustrated people there venting and the very best thing that you can do is to engage with those folks. And the literature is very clear. The data is very clear on this. If we jump in with those folks and say, help me to understand. We're so sorry that you had this experience. Let's talk it through so that it doesn't happen again and what we can do differently for you. Um, people who come to healthcare want a strong relationship and the ability to speak up in whatever venue and share their frustration and have somebody work with respect and in partnership to resolve it are much um, stronger more strongly connected to our organization. So we can't be afraid of, afraid of those. And it, unfortunately, when they're in a Yelp forum, it sort of makes people way more uncomfortable. <laughs> and so there's that. But the second thing is, this fits into like the patient relations data set and the letters that come through, all of that um, qualitative data. We should be trending that data. We should be looking for patterns and themes because there is where the richness to the standardized surveys come. And so to really, and there's there's vendors out there that have pretty slick systems to do the aggregation of the trends and the patterns and that those data sets. Um, but there's so much to learn from that space. And uh, as soon as we find a way to be comfortable about that within our own organization, and again, not react or overreact or, you know, feel helpless, um, there are really effective ways to gauge. Okay. All right. Well, interesting issues there. Uh, somebody mentions that uh, each week in their newsletter, uh, there's some social media uh, positive things that are captured. And I guess part of what comes to mind here is whether or not uh, one, you know, can also uh, <laughs> take take the courageous step of also acknowledging uh, maybe a negative comment and maybe even how uh, it might be addressed, because sometimes that person could possibly be representing uh, others as well. There's a theme in here, and I guess I can call out Tammy. I think it's Tammy uh, speaking here, uh, directed at Helen, but anyone, of course, can ad uh, address this about the degree to which patients and families are integrated into this process. So as we think about uh, what we're talking about today, the tools, the instruments, the surveys, the general uh, corralling of the information and what, you know, even how things are dealt with, uh, what's asked. Uh, where are we on on that score in terms of how much uh, patients and families are involved? And maybe if, if you feel comfortable answering that, uh, Barbara, maybe I just start with you kind of in a general sense uh, from uh, your view of looking at a lot of organizations. Well, I think Helen gave a great example of one way to tap into the wisdom of our partners in care which is uh, the folks that we serve, the reason we exist. So patients and families and community members, depending on your, on your setting. So skilled focus groups are just a, a wealth of information. Having um, patients and families with you on improvement teams, design teams, um, uh, I think all th three of us on the call have a lot of experience with the insights we get that then help us go, Oh, we wouldn't have thought about it this way. So they're a source of innovation. So my main advice to leaders is when you're at a plateau or you're stuck, um, your first place to turn to get unstuck, besides understanding your data thoroughly, is to talk to patients and families and um, have them help you understand uh, what would make this experience different for you. Okay. If I could, um, if I could add an example, sure. Matt, is that okay? Um, so, uh, yes, I, I forgot to mention, so we have patient family advisory committees at each uh, location, including our ambulatory site. And then um, uh, we do include patients and families in lean events and I'll break through. But just a story, we were doing some work on redesigning the care of a patient who suffered a stroke. Uh, and in that workshop, we brought in um, actually a patient and her husband uh, who had been through the experience to really help guide the team. And the team had a sort of an overall charter that they were going to reduce length of stay and make, you know, certain things more efficient and this and that. And uh, this this woman said, you know, the thing that would have made my life so much easier is if you didn't give me 27 therapists 
in a month, you know, both between the, the hospital and the post-acute care in the rehab unit. And it was sort of eye-opening for the team. And they just took that on as a challenge. And they worked and worked and worked it. And they basically were able to reduce it by at least half. Um, you know, obviously you're going to have some shifts and, you know, weekend care and all that. But um, it really was sort of listening to the voice of the customer. It changed their whole mindset about the problem they were really trying to solve. Okay, thank you very much. Barbara, why don't we just pivot and have you address that uh, question about uh, staff development? Uh, this is a, a big new maybe frontier. Maybe it's always been obvious that engaged staff and people who are feeling good about their work will obviously uh, have an impact on the patient experience. But what does that look like right now? Thanks. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate Brooke posing that question because uh, there's there's a great deal underway right now with this. And uh, so the question is about thoughts on staff development, training and leadership and resiliency and collaboration, all of those things. Um, I think all three of us on the call have had a lot of experience with helping those who are faced to the patient and family members to have some fundamental skills. So what happens? Um, in a clinic with that front desk staff member when you know the provider is running behind 30 minutes and you see the patient checking their watch for the 15th time in the last three minutes. Um, do we wait until it builds and builds in frustration and try and catch them after they leave the, the clinic? No. So what are the skill sets? And there are some really basic skill sets we equip our uh, our colleagues with so they don't feel like they're handcuffed. They're, they're just stuck with a, a frustrated person. So I really emphasize, and I think all of us with the, those basic skills. Um, same thing with collaboration, shared decision-making, all of those uh, absolutely vital skill sets that really in, in move to partnership in, in care. The second part of what I'm reading into your question, Brooke, and maybe others have it too, is uh, my individual resiliency, wellness, and health. The caution I have is to not start with the individual, but to start with what's the collective system feeling like. Um, the concern that I've seen of having resilience training for physicians or other uh, clinicians is the unintended message sometimes is it's all about you and your problems. So if you just kind of fix yourself, not only will you not feel quite so burned out, uh, but also the patient experience results will be better. So I think those are sometimes the unintended messages. So really starting out with a systemic approach, but also tapping into what matters to the individual. Why are they in healthcare? So the patient, the Joy and Work white paper and associated conversation guide that goes with it has had huge positive responses from those in the field about how in simple steps without tons of investment of time and resources to get started. So I hope that's helpful, Brooke. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll say it's helpful, and I'm sure it is for others as well. I really want to uh, commend everybody uh, in our audience today for all your skills and expertise excuse me, expertise and sharing uh, resources and links. Uh, I'd like to just, I think we're, we're going to get into wrap-up mode here. Um, and uh, I think what I'll do is let me start. Uh, we, we know there's been some changes already around pain and pain assessment, uh, the ways in which that maybe uh, got people into a complex uh, <laughs> uh, dynamic of trying to uh, somehow how always uh, alleviate pain, uh, perhaps uh, not with, you know, without all the sense of consequences that we now uh, know are there. So we're trying to find that uh, right space for that without obviously um, neglecting pain management. But this comment that was made was really about that when patients and families are unhappy and refer to pain, it, not unlike when people are trying to talk about rest and sleep and this and that, that the pain issues can be uh, multifaceted. And I just wondered if anyone had any thoughts on that. Barbara, you commented on it, but uh, um, I'm just curious if it resonated uh, either as well for uh, Chris or Helen. I think on the, this, Helen, for the pain piece, I think it, I'm very glad that they relaxed the, the stand around that because it really was driving people sort of paying attention to a number and not, not necessarily what the patient really 
was and, and some agreement that some pain is okay, <laughs> you know, depending on what your recovery process is like. And so um, I think that uh, we really have focused on, there's so many questions on HCAPS um, or in the medical group world, et cetera. We really pick a couple and focus on those, and the other, we figure the other things will come, um, or um, you know, a sub team can work on them. But um, the way that we've really addressed it, I, I use this um, um, statement fairly often. But it's you know, it's life is not fair. A lot of these measures are the life's not fair measures, and if you worry about every single one of them, you just get so distracted. And so we've just focused on nines and tens and overall rating of care, and you know, would you recommend your provider, and then. You know, these other sort of things where they become sort of side projects. So anyway, I was glad to see the pain uh, get relaxed a bit. Okay. And uh, Chris, any thoughts on that? The person was sort of trying to, in some ways, say, remember, it's, it's uh, think of pain in the, in the broadest sense, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I always think of pain sort of in a just culture scenario. So, you know, in our past, we went from nobody um, being responsible to everybody being responsible, and then really is it the system or what? where is this a failure point? Um, and so pain, we went from sort of saying by the bullet to nobody should have any pain. Right. Exactly. To yeah. what's the right treatment protocol? And one of the things, again, when you start to look at quantitative data along with the qualitative data is patients, I don't think even expect to have zero pain, but they want their pain to be acknowledged and feel heard and to feel supported through through the pain and discomfort that may come in our, well, under our care. And so, it, you know, you can, we can learn things from the quiet at night space as we attach this, but it's, it's a very complicated subject and um, probably worthy of a why high all on its own. But um, it's something I think we're going to continue to wrestle with. And I, I liked what Helen just said is pick a couple and try to work through it as we navigate where we're going to end up in the industry with pain in general. Okay. All right. As part of wrap-up, I, I like one of these last questions uh, uh, that came in, which had to do with whether surveys are going to evolve in such a way uh, that they kind of capture the whole patient experience uh, across the continuum. I know Helen was trying to, to say several times, you know, we have hospitals, we have ambulatory, and of course, uh, sometimes also negative experiences in one setting reverberate right into uh, the other one in terms of how somebody may be feeling. So um, I'll, I'll start with Barbara with just a quick uh, brief. I know we're at the top of the hour and people may have to dash off. Remember, the recording is there if you want to come back to it. But let's start with that theme about uh, whether we can imagine uh, moving in a direction of uh, something that's even a little bit more across the continuum and holistic. Uh, Barbara, thanks. Well, that's an aspiration that I would really um, hope and expect. I think it may be coming from us in the field rather than uh, any policymaking body. So the those who are in the leading realm of, of developing these ideas and doing that in partnership with patients and families and uh, our colleagues is the way to do it. Okay. Barbara, big, uh, huge thank you to you. Uh, Chris, uh, any thoughts at all? Uh, maybe this will be a kind of a challenge to the field, as Barbara is saying. Anything else on the horizon we might look to? I would just keep up the good fight and, and resist the pressure to teach to the standardized um, single source of truth around how we're partnering with patients and families and our colleagues and continue to look broadly for data. Okay. Thank you so much, Chris. Helen, you get the, our last <laughs> word in this hour anyway. <laughs> Ooh, the last word. Um, I think I, I wanted to leave us two thoughts. One is this is really a journey and we're all starting from where we are and it is hard work. I think sometimes just taking a time out with a team and really thinking about what is the sort of strategic roadmap to get us, you know, where are you trying to get to and how do you want to get there with a, a team of folks really sort of helps coalesce um, the journey and, and prevent some of this, you know, chasing, you know, one-offs. Um, the second thing is I think there's a role in here for advocacy. I'm really encouraged by this team, but um, we started the call by saying how much 
of our value-based purchasing and other ratings are tied to uh, some of these measures, especially age caps for hospitals. And um, it does sort of drive yourself, us and our CEOs and COOs to distraction. And it's a fairly big um, chunk of change. And so there's something about advocacy for IHI. We can, we can take that back as a to-do. Okay. Love uh, uh, kind of ending on a, a challenge uh, to all of us. Uh, so I want to extend an enormous thank you to uh, Helen, to Chris, to Barbara. We've had a lot of contact over the last several weeks uh, shaping today's program, and I'm so grateful for your time and expertise. And our audience today, you've been fantastic. You have so much to offer, and thank you for your generosity and candor. That that, uh, makes uh, the show what it is. So a reminder that when you log off the show today, you can download this chat, chat and all the other resources, or you can find everything on the website uh, by tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, and that'll be September 13th, we're going to be talking about the why and how of de-prescribing. And that also has a lot of very, very interesting patient experience elements to it. Um, you can check out the archive pages, as I'm saying, for WIHI. Uh, as of tomorrow, everything will be there, slides, chat, audio, Vicki's handy resource document, uh, you can also find this program on iTunes as of tomorrow. And any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. This is an exciting endeavor for me always. I look forward to WIHI in a way that you cannot imagine. I couldn't do it without this panel, with the audience, without the audience. And I want to thank some of our folks here at IHI who are repeatedly at my side. John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Val Weber, Brian uh, Derrick, and Pat McTiernan. We've also had Josh, one of our wonderful interns here uh, with the multimedia team, and he is eager to be helping helpful too. So it's still my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day, everyone.